This is The New Disruptors, Episode 87, How to Feel Real App Appeal with Garrett Murray. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is brought to you in part by 99designs. Have dozens of designers from the over 310,000 that are part of 99designs Network submit ideas for your logo, website, t-shirt, car wrap, or other design project. Then pick the best and have a finished professional result in a week or less for a flat price. Our listeners can visit 99designs.com slash disruptors to get a $99 power pack of services for free. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that suggests you hold down three fingers and swipe upwards. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Garrett Murray is the founder and creative director of Carbon, an app development firm, but software is in his whole life. He also happens to be an award-winning filmmaker. His firm developed the app Ego for tracking all your web status in a single glance, and actor Tom Hanks just singled out Carbon's Uncrate app as one of his two favorite, which is which is kind of neat to get a call out from, from the Hanks with an X. We'll talk about the windy road that takes someone into this career and, and also about all of uh, Garrett's creative endeavors. Garrett, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm pleased to have you on board. We don't talk all the time about software. I tend to focus, you know, we talk about creativity. It, it often seems to be, it has to be an artistic realm, even if there's a digital part. But I think that software development is not just a, a creative field, but I think it's kind of some of the lifeblood of a lot of what's happening now and allowing people to chart their own course. They, they get an app, they make an app, they use an app platform, um, even if it's a, a web app sometimes, and it gives people the tools to take control of what they're, what they're doing. Are, are we living in an app world now? I think we've been living in an app world for a long time, honestly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird because I feel like a few years ago, and maybe before the iPhone, and maybe the iPhone has just sort of pushed it over the edge, people used computers probably as much as they do now but there was something about the personal connection that changed with the iphone you know putting all this stuff with you the the amount of excitement we talk about this a lot because we have a couple of people who um who really love a product that we make at carbon called scratch which is a Mm. note-taking app for the iphone and we're always fascinated because people will sometimes beat us to announcing an update so they will they will say on Twitter like there's an update to this app, and it's amazing because we're like wow that's you know it's really great that they're that excited, um, and it's sort of at first I was like wow this is crazy these people are crazy they they must be because why are they so excited but then I realized how excited I get when I see an update to you know ViscoCam in the store or I see an update to Path or or some app that I use every day and I get really excited about these potential new features or or you know new apps that come out. And I, you start to realize that you spend everybody now, it, you know, it used to be just us nerds who were spending this much time with devices, but everybody now has this device in their pocket or on their desk or, you know, an iPad in their lap at home. And it, it, these apps have become such a normal part of your day that you do actually genuinely get excited about the idea of new apps that could do something new that you didn't think of, or, you know, an app that could do something better than, than an app you've been using for years. I mean, when I used to take screenshots of my phone regularly because I'm a loser um, and would post these online because why not? And, you know, 
I, I look at the screenshots from 2007 or eight when when the iPhone first came out versus today, and I'm using mostly apps that I wasn't using then. Some are new, some are uh, old apps that I just didn't get into. It's like I'm constantly finding new apps that I use every day, and then sometimes. I use them for, you know, three months really intensely and then I don't anymore. It's it's just, a, it's a strange environment we're in now where people are so excited about it. The downside, I guess, of that is that it's become so common now that people think of apps as um, not worth a lot of money, which obviously this is, yeah. you know, something everybody talks about all the time, but the you know, making them a commodity like that where they're just an assumed part of your existence now means that people think they should mostly be free or they, you know, this is like a right that the phone has. And so there are positives and negatives, you know, more people want these things, but in a lot of cases, fewer people want to pay for them. So it's, it's a really strange time, I think. And I'm not sure that we've hit the peak of what this, what this is actually even going to be. I mean, obviously wearables, regardless of what people think of, that as a real thing is is something that could potentially change things yeah. for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, it's very personal now. It's very real for everyone. Everybody has this. You know, we've kind of gotten to the point where literally everybody has this. Well, there's know? also a continuum that I think is interesting. I when I look at like, I mean, I know there's I don't know whether there are a million apps now. There's some crazy number. Oh yeah, I don't store. even know. It's yeah. nuts. And and so there's all these different commodities that you have on different sides of the equation. So as a creator of any kind, um, you know, you've got um, money, time insight, moxie, uh, uh, all kinds of things. And as a consumer, participant, collaborator, whatever the person on the other side or you're shaking hands with, they have like one of the key commodities they have besides money is attention. And right. I feel like attention is, you know, and I, there are people talking about the attention economy, but I feel like attention is the most precious, scarce thing right now. Now, as a magazine publisher, I feel that really intensely. Um, And one who produces an app and has a website and and has, you know, constant stream of subscriptions, I have to deal with people. But I wonder from the app development standpoint, uh, attention must be a huge thing for you. I know you do some of your own apps. And and before the podcast, you said most of your work is is, um, bespoke development for other firms. And you have a huge investment in making those. Terrific as well. But I, I wonder how much attention... Uh, and that attention economy, like, I mean, the money thing, like people do expect more for free and you have this whole thing in the gaming world and, and other parts where like in-app purchases now have to become the dominant modality. That is something interesting to talk to as well. But where do you come down in terms of attention and being able to get people or or build it that in uh, the compelling experience that gets people to participate in the apps you make? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. And it's something that I think in some way we've almost almost sidestepped in a lot of ways with both our client work and with our own apps in that we've built apps in a lot of cases that were productivity apps or um, apps for creating content. And in a lot of cases, those apps by default have a better um, signal to noise ratio and have a better, like a, a less of an ADHD sort of vibe by default, you know, with, with an app like Scratch where you're going in and taking notes and and such you, by default you're you're spending more time with it because you're actually thinking about what you're doing and granted we bill it as a fast way to get your notes down and it and it is but at the same time it's more of a thoughtful process than an app you know not to single out apps or whatever but an app like yo for instance which is all the rage right now um sort of by default that whole 
app is based around the point where you go in and you touch one button and then you're done. Right. Um, which is a thing that there is a, there is a really noticeable trend, both on the gaming side on iOS, uh, which is obviously very large, but I feel like is starting to deflate a little bit for various reasons, which we can talk about later. Mm. But, um, games on ios you know you look at the popular games a lot of them are games that you drop in and you play for 30 seconds and then you leave They're like ultra casual not even just casual yeah exactly um you know like games like flappy bird uh which was you know has its own insane debacle but there are plenty of people who i'm sure played flappy bird for hours at a time because they became obsessed with trying to get you know as high a score as possible but by default that game is built to be played for four seconds you know you go in you play a few rounds and you're done and that type of attention is the kind of attention you only want for your app if they're going to be hooked and do that every day. You definitely don't want to build an app where someone goes in and spends 10 seconds once a week <laughs> and then just doesn't care. And the truth is, there are a lot of apps that are like that, that people use that way. I'm sure if you statistically looked at the hour count spent in a lot of apps on the store on a whole, on an aggregate, it's probably very low. Um, you know, I look at my family members' phones and, you know, my my mother and sister might each have 200 apps installed on oh their phones. Oh, my goodness. You know, this, this is sort of well, the way that people do this. They see free apps. They download them. They hear about apps. They download them. But they don't necessarily go back and actually spend any time on them. I thought Apple has this stat. I think the average number of apps installed is like three. I, I think it's something crazy. So the median is probably like 50. <laughs> yeah. Though, to be honest, I think that those stats, those stats are weird to me because... I bet you that there are millions or at least a million devices on the planet that don't have any installed exactly. because they're enterprise test machines or whatever. So yeah. those stats are really strange. I would say anecdotally by looking at friends of mine, I mean, every person has at least 50 apps installed. Well, that's it's very common. Yeah, anybody, there was yeah. a thing, someone was doing a meme recently where people were sharing their screens, like what's on your home screen. Yeah. And uh, which was sort of fun too. I was like yeah. revealing and fun and whatever. And of course these are more power usury types, but, but boy, that even tells, I mean, that's a whole other thing too. It's, so it's attention. It can be divided in so many different ways. And one of oh, them yeah, is, absolutely. Is, is that um, uh, my kids play Dragon Veil sometimes. And Dragon Veil is one of those games that we haven't let them spend any money yet in any apps because we figure that's a slippery slope no matter how Definitely, you set up an yeah. allowance and whatever right. a friend of mine just uh, her son got bit by the kim kardashian game and she was uh, outraged by the game and i was like i spent a lot of time convincing her it's apple because they had set up an allowance for him but in order to do one thing they had linked in a credit card if you have an and this is an apple thing if you have an allowance plus it's linked to a credit card the allowance is overridden and it just charges the card yeah. So the kid racked up like 120 bucks in the game um, instead of hitting the, the wall. Um, but right. so, I mean, that's that's a little bit of another thing. But uh, but anyway, with Dragon Veil, it reinforces the notion that you need to come back again and again and again and again. Yeah. So if you don't buy into that and you don't come back, then the game isn't very interesting either. And the developer doesn't get anything out of it as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the yeah, the, the in-app purchase thing is kind of a, a big whole problem that, is really hard to solve and they're trying to do that ios 8 has some some stuff in it where you can actually require permission so so if you try to make a purchase it will actually ping the say your ipad and say this this that. kid's trying to make a purchase yes or no as, which as is a, a great idea as a parent as you are with yeah my children slightly older i love that idea but yeah but this is the thing people so um I think apps are an interesting expression of creativity because I, so I come from this background in graphic design, which mm -hmm. I've always loved because it's, and it's part of what's shaped this podcast is I love the intersection of 
uh, of art and aesthetics and creativity and sort of this unbridled thing, anything we can do in our heads, right? And then commerce, like the expression of it in a way that people have some kind of monetary or some barter, some kind of interaction in which there are things exchanged of value. And apps are in this really weird space because there's so much time and effort involved that commerce pretty much almost always has to be involved. Although there are labor of love apps that really people put out, but it, but it's, there's a, there's a dial there for everything you do. You're a, you obviously have this very interesting creative background. Um, and which I like to talk about a bit and and I'm wondering how that got you into this really, you know, the, the crux of the modern era of, of interaction. Where did you come from that this intersection was interesting for you? Where did this start for you? Well, apps specifically are just a like the iOS store specifically, I guess, is a really interesting combination of a bunch of things that were hard in the past and that suddenly became very easy. And I think that that made it made it a no brainer for me personally. But I mean, so where I come from, you know, I started in high school, a little bit in junior high, but mostly in high school, I started playing with HTML CSS, you know, like everybody at that time, this is the the mid 90s, everybody started doing that um, around there. And, you know, I was always, I was always a computer kid. I always really enjoyed, you know, screwing around with computers. And I was, I started playing around with Photoshop in, in the school library and, you know, got a Hotmail account or whatever, even though I didn't know anybody who had an email account and, and all that stuff. And started playing around with HTML, CSS, started, you know, the idea of, you know, as a kid, I think like a lot of kids, I spent a lot of time with the, the family, um, home video camera and friends making really stupid little, you know, <laughs> sketches and and sometimes just straight up like redoing SNL sketches or whatever. And, and I used to fancy myself a, a funny writer in junior high and high school, and I would write all these stupid little jokes. And so it, it, it got to the point where I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm hilarious. And, and I think people, they have to see this amazing content I'm creating. So <laughs> when the internet became, started to, <laughs> started to become, it started to become like a real thing when I was in junior high, where it, before that, I think when I was in like seventh or eighth grade, this would be like 1991 or so, um, 92, I remember hearing about the internet at school and hearing that this was like a thing. Maybe that's, maybe that's a year or two earlier, but, um, when, when it became a thing where it wasn't just the thing we used at school to look stuff up when it was possible to actually like browse the internet and that started becoming real, I sort of immediately was like, wow, I could put my stuff on this and then I could show my friends and they would think I was funny. And so that was sort of the entire reason I started learning HTML. It's like, I got to have a website so I can put all my funny jokes up. And I created a GeoCities account. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I put this, this horrible GeoCities site together with a friend of mine. And um, I think it was called Garrett's realm, um, which, you know, seems pretty appropriate uh, at the time. And it had one of those Java applets that did the reflection. You remember those, those awful applets? Yeah. So I had one of those. So I uploaded this thing to (laughs) GeoCities and I think the, like sort of indicative of, of how my life has always gone at the, the front page of this said, this is just, I just launched this website. There will be new content every day. And then I never uploaded a single thing after that. Um, which is what I've done a million times over throughout my life. How many blogs have we all abandoned yeah, that say exactly. that? I did, I did find some of your old blogs when I was researching this episode. Oh, God. And, uh, and it's, and, but you know, I have, God, I have, a, I have a blog that sometimes 
I used to update, you know, not necessarily daily for a while, and then it disappeared, or, you know, it's gone, yeah. and then it's changed, it's gone through four hosting companies, the yeah. old posts are, like, been exported, imported from four different systems, and, uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's tradition. I mean, I technically have stuff online as early as 2001, I think, is how far you can go back. Please don't. It's really, really bad. It's so horrible. It's like the writings of an 18-year-old, you know, and... It's just terrible, and I, I, I've left that stuff online primarily because I feel like it seems wrong to remove it. It's, it's true, and it's real, and it's awful, but... Um, so yeah, I got into HTML and CSS, and I made these stupid websites, and I made my own, and, and then in college, I got into um, PHP was the first language that I really started, because I, I, it, it went from, I'm running my own website, but it's like three flat HTML files, to I want to have like an ability to write a diary where I don't have to like write all this code every day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is right around when movable type started becoming a real thing where people were really talking about it, but I didn't understand Perl. And, you know, I think that like a lot of other things in my life, I had this curiosity to try to do it myself, um, which has probably gotten me into plenty of problems, but also is fairly responsible for where I am today, I guess. Um, and so I started learning PHP th basically through a friend of mine just asking him questions. You'd be surprised how long it took me to understand what an array was. Like, it's kind of embarrassing in, in hindsight. Um, so I learned PHP, started doing that. And then from that point on, it just sort of, it became, it just became a challenge to learn something new. You know, then it was JavaScript and then it was CSS2 and then it was, you know, HTML4 and then HTML5 and blah, blah, blah. It just kind of kept happening. And so when I left college, I was a film major, uh, made a bunch of dumb, you know, little short films in college and then left college and um, knew that I had to get a job, you know, like I wasn't going to go into the film industry out of college in New Jersey. So got a job at a little web company in New Jersey doing, I think I was doing ASP 2.0, which if anybody knows, has written, oh that's God. just, just hor horrid. And I actually lied in the interview. I didn't know ASP at all. And they said, uh, you know ASP, right? And I was like, absolutely. I do that every day. <laughs> what's, what's the worst um, thing that could happen? But, yeah. yeah. So I just went to Barnes & Noble immediately after the exactly. interview and bought a book and spent the whole weekend trying to figure it out. Thankfully, at the time, uh, Dreamweaver uh, had this insanely simple, like, WYSIWYG ASP support where you could say, like, connect to this database and then drag in a an entire block of code that would say select all this stuff. It was it, it basically made it possible for me to get through the first two weeks of actually learning ASP on the job. Mm -hmm. And I did that like three or four times in my career where I just was like, yep, I totally know that 100%. This is and classically the book. typically male, always yeah. engineer approach. I've done it myself is, is uh, the I started a web company in 1994 and uh, I did not know any programming languages for that worked on the web. And I got a client who said, can you make a shopping basket? I said, I can try. Yeah, and I learned 100%. Pearl and lo yeah. and behold, there were shopping baskets, but yeah, exactly. yeah it, but it, that's, I I mean, that's an interesting thing is I, I don't know if it's a risk angle or a confidence thing is I don't think, you know, you don't sound like a an overconfident person. I don't think I was either, but it's that like, well, look, I'm going to either fail or not. If I fail, right. the penalty is I get fired. I get another right. job. If right. I succeed, then I have a job. So it's probably better for me to try to fail than to not try to fail. Yeah, especially the early parts of a career anyway, where, you know, I was just coming out of college. And yeah, that was basically my thought is like, if I fail at this, they're going to say, hey, idiot. You said you knew this and you don't. I'm sorry, we have to fire you. But it's not like they were going to follow me around every exactly. job interview and go, you know, this guy's a liar. Don't trust him. Um, you have to watch that. Right. Yeah. You don't, there's no like minus K clout for this guy doesn't yeah. know anything about right. that, even Especially today. at a time where no one knew who I was anyway. You exactly. know, I wouldn't have met. I was in, you know, Madison, New Jersey. It's not like it was going to follow me for the rest of my life. And I also, yeah, I don't know if it was overconfidence, but I think it was also 
I felt really elastic at the time at that age where I felt like no matter what, I would probably be able to do it if I worked hard enough. You know, mm-hmm. like I hadn't, I had never really been at a point at that time in my life where I had failed at something horribly. So I sort of felt like I had enough confidence to say like, I probably won't, Hey, maybe I won't be able to knock this out of the park starting day one, but as long as I can survive for a few months, I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I did that and, you know, I just sort of bounced from, I moved from New Jersey to Brooklyn and started working at a, a slightly bigger agency in the city and then agency after agency for a while until I got in, eventually ended up in a larger agency that was mostly pharmaceutical business, um, which as everybody knows, they always have money. So that's a good business to be in. Um, learned uh, along the way, learned, uh, cold fusion, which is horrible. Um, and Ruby on rails, which I really loved. Um, and just a bunch of, you know, just sort of going through the same stuff, learning tools that I had to, to get the jobs done. And, and, um, and so I ended up at that agency. And then I, the whole time, I think like a lot of other people who are in a similar situation to me running their own small business, I just was doing a lot of stuff on the side, you know, like my own little projects. I was just constantly trying to learn new stuff, build new things. I built, countless content management systems for myself. I ended up releasing one in Ruby on Rails called Simple Log, which ended up being semi-popular, which was interesting. And I wrote an OS X application called XPad um, in 2004, I think. And it was just a note-taking app. Um, it's actually kind of similar in a way to, to Scratch, uh, mm-hmm. the app we have for our iOS, which is a coincidence um, because uh, the guy who works for me, Sean Morrison, it was actually his idea to do Scratch and sort of his brainchild. But it's kind of funny because it, it solves a similar problem but it was just a note-taking app, and it was the first what I considered real engineering I had ever done, where I was actually genuinely very confused, and uh, <laughs> and I just couldn't figure it. I I I've used to speak at a lot of conferences, and I would show code from Xcode or Xpad, um, and it, people would just laugh for like ten minutes straight it, because I, it's it's just the worst it's the worst code on earth. All of the code is in one class, which you wouldn't even think it would be possible technically. I'm not yeah. even sure how I did it. Um, and that class is called my data source. Cause I read a tutorial and it just is so horrible, but it kind of goes toward one thing that's kind of gotten me where I am, which is that I didn't know what I was doing, but I kind of just figured out how to make it work. And the crazy thing is that app came out in 2004. It still works today. Ooh. Um, it has had no bug reports for 10 years. That's hilarious. It has been downloaded 500,000 times. There are people who have been using this app for 10 years, and I get emails from them saying, like, still using XPad, still love it. And I just think, I always immediately say, please back up your data. Please, please back up your data. I have no idea what's going on in that app. So, so, and then, you know, I just, I made a lot of friends in the web community. I made a lot of friends for do, from do, speaking at conferences and doing all that stuff, and and I always wanted to build my own stuff. I really enjoyed it, but it was really hard to get it out there. You know, when you, when I, when I built XPad, it was like, here's XPad, please use it and tell your friends about it. You know, it was like $4 or something at the time. I never even made really any money. It ended up being freeware. Um, it was very hard to get that out there. And so my struggle was always building stuff that I loved, but getting it in people's hands. And so when the iPhone, when the app store was announced and the SDK was announced, and they talked about how they were going to give you a place to display your work and get it sold and handle all that stuff for you. Yeah. It just like a light went off in my head where one, I love the platform. I love the design aesthetic, uh, of the iPhone and of the OS. I, I know for the most part, I know the language. I had been a little rusty on objective C. Um, 
but I, in general, I was like, I could do this and they've solved all of the problems that before made it impossible for me to get this in front of people. And that was a totally unique moment to oh, me. That's interesting. So it's the, so, huh. So distribution. And I heard this, especially in the early days, you know, you get, there are more complaints now. This ties back to the whole attention thing too, is, mm-hmm. is with a million apps, how do you get anyone to notice what you're doing? That's a whole, that's a whole thing. And we were talking about that a little bit already, but the fact that the that there was a, a a distribution channel you didn't have to build and sort of feed and maintain like that is interesting to me that that was so compelling like and i, and I heard that from people in the early, early days too was yeah. that um even people who had had mac apps out and had sort of built an audience and the iphone was aligned with that uh they were like look you know i know apple wants 30 percent. that's a lot of money maybe it's too much money it's still an argument maybe 20 percent is fair who knows right but they were able to sustain it and we're all coping with it whatever so you could argue about the placement of the decimal points and so forth there but it was i don't have to do anything i give this to apple and they do everything and if i'm lucky i can get onto a, a good list but I could sell a million copies or a thousand copies and the workload on me to make that happen is identical yeah. Yeah. The distribution chain for, for me and for a lot of people I knew was just, was the, it was astounding. It just, there's none of, we don't have to do any of that. I mean, Apple deposits that money into your account. They don't, you know, you fill out two forms and that's it. You know, it's amazing. You don't have to worry about any of that. Yeah. I will say the greatest day of the month is I get the statements, the whole weird create. I mean, as, as people listening to this podcast may not know, Apple has apparently built all of its iTunes and app store stuff on the backs of ancient applications yeah. it still feels that way and yeah. i think there's a big change coming but there's this great moment every month where like i get a pile of crazy email from every store around the world and the email <laughs> is terrible and it comes in and the website doesn't update and i sit there and reload reload and it's like oh my god that's how much money is gonna be deposited and then like whatever three weeks later the yeah. money shows up my account and apple does that it just happens yeah. happens happens and it and even though, again, I don't know if 30% is the right amount. If, they, if it was 20%, I think there'd be like a 97% less discussion about it. But the fact that they just do this, they've taken that all off our plates. It mm-hmm. unbounds our ability to do things, I think. Um, yeah, it, those emails goes. those emails are terrific, by the way. I agree. <laughs> we, yeah, there's like 35, 37 or something like, of them now. And for some reason, for... Gmail can't filter them correctly for yes. me. So it's like no matter what, they appear in the wrong labels every month. And yeah, so every month I go through and I have 37 seven unread emails in some wrong label folder or something. But um, yeah, the fact that Apple, not only do they they do all that for you. They don't ever miss a payment. They don't ever, they're never yeah. late. You know, I wonder it's if like, they got the money. Do they have the money to pay me this month? I'm not, yeah, I'm exactly. not sure. If you know, it's amazing. Shit. It's you, d- you just don't have to worry about it. It just, all you have to worry about is, is generating sales. Um, and I will agree with you. I, at 30% is too much. I think it was in the beginning. It was okay because they had done something rev- revolutionary. And so they were able to say, look, you've never had an opportunity like this. We're going to do all this for you, but it doesn't cost them anywhere near 30%. And I'm not saying it should, they should do it at cost, but I think it probably cost them 1% to do this, if anything. Hey, let's take a break so I can tell you about 99designs. Now, you know from previous episodes, and I'm probably repeating myself already, I was trained as a typesetter and as a graphic designer. I know the work it takes to do visual communication right. It's involved. It's challenging. But you know what? It doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. Simple projects shouldn't cost a lot, but all the overhead that's involved in finding a designer, making the contracts, and having every relationship work adds up. 
99 Designs takes a lot of that pain out of the process, and it's a disruptive company because it takes the pain out both for you as a client who needs, you know, a new logo, a business card updated, a car wrap, a T-shirt, whatever you might need designed. It removes the friction between you and over 310,000 graphic designers in 99designs network. They take the pain out of it, not only by vetting people and making sure that the transactions go well, they offer a 100% money-back guarantee. And what they make it possible to do is for you to come up with the idea of what you need, whatever it might be, submit it, and get dozens of designers to compete for the initial idea. Then you can pick someone, have them work it through to completion, you pay a reasonable fixed rate so you know exactly what to expect, and you get the results within a week, sometimes faster. These are all professional, competent designers who come to 99designs and participate participate because they want your work. This is an efficient marketplace that lets them work better too. It's a win all around. Now, why would you use 99designs? It's typically because you need one thing and because you might want it to turn around fast. You might be doing seasonal advertising. You might need to update your logo. You might need, say, a bunch of business cards designed or their website pages to be done. Any of those things where you can define a job really discreetly and it's a task that has a good bound to it, you can put this up on the site. You get dozens of responses and you've got what you want with a reliable, consistent experience and the backing of 99designs in case something goes wrong. 99designs disrupted graphic design not by making it less expensive, but by removing overhead and removing the impediment, by making a more direct connection and making a more efficient marketplace that you can be part of, listener to the new disruptors. And as part of this, you can get a nice bonus. If you go to 99designs.com, that's numeral 9, numeral 9, designs.com slash disruptors, you get a $99 power pack of services free, and you can get even more designers to work with you on your branding. And now back to the podcast. You know, what I keep coming back to, and this has been a recurring theme on this podcast, I've had a lot of um, what I like to call I mean, I don't know. There's not a good term for it. Sometimes thin facilitators, which sounds, or thin middlemen, like mm-hmm. there's the gatekeepers of the past who would keep you from doing something, sort of like film studios or distributors or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like they take a lot of money and they're very selective because they're using scarcity as right. a way to control the output for people to consume and make the most money. And I, and I get that. The new ones are people like VHX, which I'm sure you're very aware of. And for film distribution, I had the, uh, the fellow from there on. Uh, Kickstarter, um, and, uh, Etsy, like there's all these platforms that... They take a really relatively tiny amount of money. So you're like, all right, Kickstarter takes roughly 10% between its fee and credit card processing fees. And that and, uh, uh, and that doesn't seem terrible to me because I know what the costs are. So they're only making 5% and the credit card companies are making you know 3 to 5% of every transaction. Right. So there's somewhere between 10 and 30% that's the right number. And, and 30% is the wrong number. But Apple yeah. continues to provide us a, sort of this persuasive opportunity without competition for the most money that's being spent on apps. So all of us that are seeking that out, I mean, you're right in the forefront of that. If we're seeking out that audience, we don't have a, we don't have a choice, uh, you know, to, to paraphrase, <laughs> to paraphrase a famous a recent Amazon comment when Amazon was having its battles with Macmillan uh, months ago, it said, Macmillan has a monopoly on its own books, which is a crazy thing to say. But, yeah, that's... <laughs> in it, but I understand that, that from Amazon's standpoint, that's how it feels, even sure. though they're maybe the aggressor, who knows. But I feel like that's something you could say, like Apple has a monopoly on its own distribution channel. You're like, oh, it's it, it's it. We're paying a tax to be part of it. But they've also developed this incredible audience. So if I'm on Android, I don't... Like, we don't sell the magazine on Android yet because yeah. no one's persuaded me that there's an audience for paying for... 
uh, written content that's subscriber based there. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know anybody I don't else think, doing it. I don't think there's an audience for paid content of any kind on Android, really, for the most part, based it's on evidence from clients and stuff. Yeah. It's, I mean, one thing I would say about the just before I forget about that Amazon thing, which I find really interesting, is in Amazon's case, um, they are doing it for what they claim is the benefit is for the customer, right? right? Lower the price for the customer. But we all know that the benefit is for Amazon because if the customer, and granted there is a, there's a, a through benefit for the customer in general, but if Amazon can lower its prices, it can sell for cheaper, which means it can beat people like Barnes and Noble and all these other companies, which means you'll shop at Amazon, which means you're more likely to buy other stuff at Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, which is fine. And that's how commerce works. And I get it. I think Amazon is probably not the nicest company with how they're, how they're doing these things, but the so i can see the complaint from a book publisher saying we have costs these are what they are you know this is what it takes for us to sell these and make a profit and pay our authors and all these different things so i think that on the amazon argument it feels very one-sided where amazon is really the one who would benefit the most from that situation i think on apple's side lowering the price from 30 percent would actually benefit every single person involved because Apple doesn't need that money. They've basically said that the App Store is a break-even business anyway. Like, it's obviously not a big part of their their billions right. and billions they, and billions of dollars. They it's, sell razors. They don't need to sell razors exactly, anymore exactly. for some so reason. For them, even even for, for sake of argument, lowering their cut only to twenty percent. Yeah, they will see effectively no difference. You know, and granted, it sounds silly to say that because we are probably talking about a billion dollars. But for them, we're talking about no difference. But the benefit to the consumers and the um, app makers is really high because there are probably plenty of people who have priced their apps higher because they need to compensate for that 30%. And then because of that, customers don't buy the products and they buy That's cheaper right. products. And Price elasticity is a fascinating yeah. argument, especially when we're independents. Like if you're a Microsoft, I mean, you know, so you're not a Microsoft, you're a small firm that's doing bespoke work. And uh, if you're a giant company and this is like one component of what you do, or even if all you do is apps, but you're really, you know, you're a multi tens of millions of dollar company and you have a, a disparate set of apps, it's like there's a different set of price elasticity for you. And if right. you can go from 299 to 199, and th I mean, this has been Amazon's argument actually in the ebook side too, is they've done the testing because they control the marketplace, the end price. So they've actually tested it. But I, I, I hear what you're saying is if you could price something as an independent, you know, let's say I have to charge 299 yet now and I, um, I get X copies, but if I get 50% more at a yeah. buck 99 with a 20% Right. then suddenly I'm making more money. Apple is making more money. Uh, the consumer has a lower price. It's a win all around. It's not it's sort of a non-zero sum. Uh, so here's a question too, is, you know, the size of these markets, like there's an issue as to whether, is there a certain amount people will pay for apps and in-app purchases, or is there an, a, a larger unbounded amount that's affected by price elasticity? I would argue the latter, that price affects spending as opposed to people thinking i'm going to spend 35 dollars a month people spend money in crazy ways oh yeah i don't i i mean i'm sure there are people we have we've actually received people asking us if we're ever going to have a sale on scratch because they're like i've got an itunes card that has 30 dollars on it you know right. and I, that's my monthly limit a lot of those people i think probably are teenagers or or in a situation where their money is not theirs and so i can understand that what do you sell scratch for uh it's currently 2.99 i think 
and they want uh, you and they and they want you to lower that oh god let, let me tell you i've seen ha- some emails about things like this <laughs> if we have another hour i can go into the insane <laughs> pricing issues oh. that it that take place just i mean we've gone all over the place when we when we came out i think we were 299 then we went to 199 for a while then we went to i want to say we even went above 299 once and then we came back to 299 i I think we're at two ninety nine right now. I actually don't even know. Well, That's how crazy it's been. I should sidebar and I'll put a link in the notes. But you know, Marco Armit priced. Um, I don't even blank. Overcast is mm-hmm. six nine. It's free. I mean, he. You know, you go to uh, uh, to marco.org to read about a lot of this stuff, and I'll mm-hmm. put some links in. But when he was con- planning uh, pod, the Overcast podcast. He planned to make it free and then have mm-hmm. the features be in-app purchase because that's how new apps have to be built, it seems right. like, these days for a lot of stuff. And he priced it at $6.99. And what's hilarious is there have been so many dust-ups over that versus $1.99, three, mm-hmm. $2.99, $4.99. There was a whole thing at uh, com where, in fact, ultimately the reviewer went back and revised the review because the reviewer found the features superior, but he thought a $2 difference between it and competitors, despite having a different feature set, made it unaffordable and unfair. And, asinine. And, but I can understand it. But like at one level, you're like, well, this is 30 to 50% more or, or even 100% more than the competitors. Like Marco is pricing himself out of the market. At another, you're like, it's $2 for people yeah. who own smartphones. And one could also argue, as with your app, as with Scratch uh, in particular, uh, Overcast has actual time-saving features in it that mm-hmm. you're paying for. So you could say, you know, it's got a smart a silence remover that's pretty cool, actually. And if you use that and you listen to a lot of podcasts, that actually is going to give me back hours a year mm-hmm. to listen to more mm-hmm. podcasts. So I'm okay with two bucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I, I've been using Overcast as well. I really like it. I, I paid for the... I paid for the in-app um, purchase. I think it was four ninety nine when I did it, if I remember correctly. Um, so we can't and, even keep uh, track of it. The numbers are so tiny. Yeah, they only matter in huge, in huge amounts. To me, yeah. to me the, the reason I bought that, uh, the in-app purchase, actually, I bought it when I was traveling and I needed cellular downloads. But then I sort of was like, I would have probably bought it anyway because as a, as a maker of apps, I tend to prefer apps that are not free um, for a lot of reasons. One of them being that... If an app is free, I sort of think, what's the end game here? Am I, is this app going to exist in six months? Or are they going to have to sell to Facebook and immediately go out of business? Or, you know, I don't, the market is so bizarre that if, unless the app is coming from a major company like Microsoft, Google, Facebook, et cetera, where free makes sense because they just don't care about money, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm nervous when an app is free because I know what it takes <laughs> to build one. I know how much it costs. I know how much it costs to maintain it, to support it. And if yes. it's free, where the hell is the money coming from? And if the money's coming from VC, that's great because you got six more months until you have to take either more of it or go out of business or get acquired. And Yeah, this is what made me nervous about. Trello was one of my favorite products. It's from Fogbugs mm-hmm. or Fog Creek software, and Fogbugs yeah. is what they're well known for. And when Trello came out, I was working with a group where uh, Tidbits Publishing, where we've been working for years on different task group management software like you guys were we were a virtual uh, editorial mm-hmm. operation trello was the first thing that actually matched the way we think it's not the perfect product but it's the first mm-hmm. thing that matched our workflow and the way we think and i was like oh my god please charge i actually sent them email and they put up some form at one point do you think we should charge something and i was like please charge. other people yeah. like no it should stay free from please charge something and 100 yeah and eventually they've now they started offering premium features they've now popped off into a separate yeah. independent yeah, company that. and i could not be more delighted to be able to have the opportunity to pay for their service. Yeah, and also, you know, they'll be able to build features without the risk of, hey, we're just spending money on salaries for no reason. Granted, 
you know, Fog Creek is a huge company. They're doing quite well. Fogbugs, you know, obviously is a, is a, a major moneymaker. I've seen their Joel's walkthrough videos of their amazing offices and stuff mm-hmm. there. But that doesn't mean their products should be free. You know, we've exactly. got this thing where people go, well, they're doing pretty well. Do they really have to charge $3 for this? It's like, give me a break. It still takes money. You know, I mean, for us with Scratch, yeah, it was, it was a kind of a nightmare because it's, people look at it and I think they say, well, it's a note-taking app. It's pretty simple. It must not have been hard to build. And that's ridiculous because there's countless hours of design. There's countless hours of engineering. There's countless hours of testing, of user experience design, of prototyping, of all those things. I mean, the app is simple for a reason. It's not simple because simple is easy. It's simple because simple's hard. It's really hard, hard to build a good, simple thing. Something that you can use every day and never go, I wish this worked better, or I wish this did it the way it should do it, or why is this why is this confusing? You know, those questions are not easy to solve and they take time and time costs money. I pay this money to employees who work. And the idea that, that someone would say, well, it should be free. It's like, no, it should not. Absolutely should not be free. There's a related factor too. I think that, that you're bringing up, which is um, that people may haggle over a dollar or two or three or whatever it's going to be, but they forget the support costs because that's not their mm-hmm. part. A consumer, a mm-hmm. typical consumer doesn't care about support costs. It's not into it. So Marco charging, like I said, maybe it is six. I should look that up. I should look it up and put it in the notes. But whatever he's charging for Overcast, part of it is that he recognizes that the less money people pay, if you get more customers. So price elasticity is right. this thing about like, so there's this great talk you can find online that I'll put the link in from Singleton Duh from the conference. I've mentioned before, Michael Jurowitz gave this talk about essentially about price elasticity. This was when, before he was at Apple, he was at Black Pixel, a software developer. And it was sort of all the different dials you can twist and how it works. But one of the dials is that support thing. So you're a small, you've got, is it four people, including you right now who are yes. employees? So, you know, you that's a huge, burden however you cut it uh and i, I realize that most of your work is for other people but still if the the less money you charge maybe you get more customers but they may not be the customers you want they may have a greater sense of entitlement of your time and to be totally blunt less sophisticated you might get customers mm-hmm. who buy it because it's cheap or get something that's free you never do the in-app purchase and these folks wind up sucking time down because and it's not related to what you're trying to do. So you might actually make more money in raw terms, but not enough to be worth the extra time and hassle for the support costs for people who aren't willing to pay the price in the first place. The top absolutely. Price. Absolutely. I, I had a, I wrote a, a post on my site years ago, back when people actually read my site. And it was right when the app store was kind of starting down this road of the road to free and stuff was getting kind of wacky and reviews were becoming really punitive and all this stuff. And uh, I wrote a post and there was a quote in this post that got pulled out a lot and people were really, uh, developers agreed with, but users were really angry about, which is something along the lines of, um, the app store is creating the kind of customers I don't want. Oh my God. Yeah. But, and I, and that sounds, and we have to stop for a second because you have to say that's not, a, that sounds horribly elitist yeah. in one sense, but it's not like, oh, these people are too poor or they're too stupid. It's that it's a, it's a handholding thing. Mm-hmm. I worked with one group where we had one guy who I can't even tell you the number of questions he sent about things related to stuff we were doing. And he actually bought a ton of merchandise. So it was worth servicing him, but he was also our biggest, I know, like expense of time right. to deal with. And then there were other people who had never never been involved were very tangentially related to us and we simply couldn't afford to give them the help they personally needed but it's not a reflection on them as individuals it's yeah. a reflection of how they interact with technology or your product 
Yeah, I mean, it got to the point where you would get if if you and now granted, I've never personally sold had a free app in the store. My apps have always cost money because it costs money to make them, and I think doing a free app is crazy. Um, I can understand free with IAP because I think that's sort of where things are going anyway. But um, at a minimum, I've always charged. But I would get reviews, especially for ego from people who were extremely punitive about how I spent $1.99 for this. Why doesn't it do these 20 things that I knew it didn't do when I bought it? Because it's, you know, the description is clear. Yes. But it had better do them, or I'm going to rate every single version of this one star until you do them. And so to me, it was like, this is creating this super negative version of the customer, uh, you know, engineer relationship. I, I don't... I don't want to be made to be threatened by my customers because they spent a dollar. I mean, what world is this? You know, imagine if you went into McDonald's and you bought a small fry and then you said, why aren't you guys washing my car? If you don't, I'm going to stand here and protest until you do it. It's like, well, that's clearly not part of the agreement here. And why am I having to deal with this for a dollar? Many years ago, I was at Amazon uh, back in its very early days and I was in charge of uh, its catalog, which included at that time and being in charge of reviews. And I worked with the group that handled sort of dealing with review problems and author information, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And I had a category of thing I called at that time, which was the, the review is, the review and, and this this is exactly what you're saying is is people are reviewing the book for what is not in it yeah. and there are sometimes it's justified you advertise an app and say this app will do x and it doesn't do x then it's totally reasonable if you say the app does y and people say this app doesn't do x you cannot re- you cannot you can say i wish it did y but i understand it does x so that, that's fine too but you cannot so I, we would we would drop reviews it was one of the condition one of the circumstances and for years i would report to amazon if i saw on a book review page something i wrote someone else wrote some you know random person uh if it was reviewing something for something it was not the feedback i would give was this review is illegitimate because it is right. critiquing the book it is critiquing it for something that the book does not maintain and for a while they used to review remove those too we don't have that luxury with with uh apple it's very yeah, difficult it's... unless it's a totally harassing review to get it removed right false advertising i totally agree with if you know if an app claims that it can post pictures to facebook and you go in there and it doesn't do it yeah that's totally your right to complain regardless of the price point you should even be able to complain if it's a free app false advertising is a problem and you know that's but it, it was the yeah it was the punitive this app should do x and damn you until you do it you're <laughs> going to be punished for it and and the crazy thing is those that is actually a very severe punishment i don't think users realized how insane rating an app one star can actually be in the store. And this sort of goes back to what Marco has been writing about on and off. And I think a lot of us have been writing about, which is that the app store is fundamentally broken for what it is now. It did not scale well with the number of apps. And if anything, Apple ruined it by focusing on top charts, which is just total nonsense and, and totally unnecessary and horrible. And it, it, most of the apps in the top charts are terrible. And it's just awful to have this race to the top. And a lot of them race to the top for free. It makes no sense. And it just, the whole, the search is terrible. And it's thankfully going to get better again in iOS 8 from what I've seen. Um, But it's terrible in iOS 7. It's absolutely horrible. Our app is called Scratch. Frequently, when you search, it's like the 30th result. And the ones in front of it aren't called Scratch. Right, right. So 
I don't care if the word Scratch is in the description. That should be obviously weighted lower than an app called Scratch. That just makes no sense. And it's those full screen card results. So you have to pan and swipe through every single result. It's just terrible. Well, hey, let's, uh, let's bump up a level too, because so in the weeds, we have this problem, which is very well known. We bump up a level. It's the, it's the, how does this affect you? Like, like this is a systemic problem. We hope we'll say, we'll, we'll, um, they'll fix, but it, it's part of the penalty of being, uh, you know, independent is that we have these dependencies, right? Is that, right. is that we're as independent as, the places we hook into and is there any there's no way i mean given the app store and apple's approach there's no way for us to break out of that either which is what what is more i don't want to say irksome but that's the fundamental structural issue is that we cannot you know web apps are are useful and there's some great web apps but unless we're part of apple's system we cannot really reach the audience that we want to reach with the kind of things we're trying to express yeah and i think that a lot of the you know jared sinclair just wrote about uh, you know, what it's like to be an indie developer and, and whether or not you can make any money. And he basically revealed that like, if, if on red does as well as it's done so far, he'll end up making $27,000 a year or some insanely low number. Um, and, and, it, you know, I think that there's probably some people may think that's an insensitive thing to say that $27,000 is an insanely low number, but it really is in this industry, especially when you consider that there are people who who are not working nearly as much as he is in this industry and making a lot more. Yeah, um, he's you know, and we're in the same boat. There are many, many hours, many, many weeks that I've worked 80, 90 hours a week to to do work for clients and to do our own work. And the truth is, people still think it's a gold rush, and it's not a gold rush. The gold rush is gone. This market is very difficult. It's very hard to make money. Even major companies are struggling to make money in this market, and we've. We've we've hit the bottom. Um, hopefully, this will be something that changes. But I, we've been in this bottom for a long time now with the with the pricing strategies. But you know, it's it's interesting to look at it from both sides. Being a you know, as I was saying before we started recording, we make ninety. I think I said ninety eight percent, but honestly, we make ninety nine point five percent of our money off client work. And client work is really interesting because. Um, a majority of our clients do not sell their apps because they are major corporations right. that that have free apps, and so they throw lots of money at these apps, and they're free. Um, we've been very lucky to have a lot of really great clients. I mean, you know, we just wrapped up an internal project for American Express, and we worked. We've been working now for three years with Google, and we did some work for Yelp, and like we were working with these major companies, but every single one of them, their apps are free, and it's very interesting to me because. We, you know, we do this work for these companies that we're in such a strange place as a company for ourselves as Carbon because our our apps, the work that we've done at this point has been used by, I would say, over 100 million people yeah, have used yeah. the work that we've done. Um, no one has any clue about that, which is, as a business owner, is very difficult to swallow. And people think that because of that, we are millionaires who are sitting on top of piles of cash. <laughs> I went to oh my gosh, I wish I went I to wish the bank you. the other day to deal with a banking issue with our business account, and the woman asked me what our business did, and I said we build iPhone apps for clients, and she gasped and said, "This is literally what she said to me." She said, "Did you know that can make a lot of money?" <laughs> and I just thought, <laughs> "What 
the hell is what does that mean <laughs> like our first of all it seems weird to tell me that because it's the business i'm running well, if i she, didn't know you know she saw your account so maybe that's yeah. maybe that's the irony of it is you're just yeah, saying she, well, it's, it's kind of like she was saying you know you could be making lots of money oh here and you're like what's going Look, on lady my i got american express as a client we're doing yeah, it as best we can. But, exactly. but isn't that isn't that part of the uh, i mean i face this in trying to budget to uh we eventually uh with the magazine switched platforms, so Marco built the first mm-hmm. platform because he could donate his own labor. And right. in your situation too, you have employees. You're not donating your labor, but you have a you have a budgetary cost. You're not contracting. I maybe use some contract help, but I mean, you're fundamentally you know what your cost of labor is and what mm-hmm. people's participation in that is. Uh, we wound up just switching. I, it's really I own the thing, but it's uh, people I consult with. But we wound up switching to uh, Type Engine for the 2.0 app because they're a company that all they do is publishing platforms and right. they were able to accommodate and extend to meet us. So I know what it costs to budget and it's, it's both expensive and not because it's so intensive. It's so labor intensive. The competition for people in the field is so intensive that it's unless you're in a position of being a solo sort of um, solo app programmer doing your own thing and selling your apps. Um, right. It doesn't, it's not necessarily, as you well know, it's not that it's not that it's not lucrative. It's just that it's not, there's no upside above what you're doing for yourself. Right. I mean, yeah, you, have, I mean you have hourly fees. You know what those are. You have budgets, you have contracts, you're working with big companies. I'm sure you would argue you're not being undercompensated um, by, you know, the, the scale of work you're doing. But there's not an unlimited upside as there is when you're out in sort of the free market selling mm-hmm. thing, as well as the unlimited risk of making nothing. Right. Yeah. I mean, we yeah, I don't want to say that it's not lucrative because it absolutely can be 100 percent. You know, it is a business and, and there are definitely times where we do a project where we make more money on it than I feel like we sh- we we ever thought we could. But then we also have, <laughs> yeah. But we also have projects where we make way less because yeah. it takes way longer to get something done, and because Apple rejects it thirty times for a dumb reason, and that costs us money. And so you know, on on a whole, it balances out to we're able to run the business. We've been profit- profitable for four years, and that's terrific. But I also every year it's. I constantly think like this could be it for us because the market is difficult and it's constrained. And when we started, when we started, it definitely was a gold rush in the sense that if you could get the work done, you could get a lot of work because no one had teams. No one had people doing right. this work. No one had the no experience. One, no one had not, experience. Yeah, exactly. like five years of experience doing apps. Like, well, now people have six, seven years. Of yeah. Experience and so it was really easy at first to get this work. And, you know, I'm lucky in the sense that I spent 10 years in in the generally in the industry making friends making contact uh, contacting most of the work that we've gotten even these bigger um, clients have come through direct connections i've had with friends and and friends of friends which is fantastic and you know i had to put in 10 years to get there by making connections and doing good work but it, it definitely helped us to run a business because it gave us an ability to not have to try to do hard sales work at first you know we could get people would say you know my friend garrett runs his company and he does really good work and then they'd come to us and we'd be able to seal the deal so there is, it was definitely a gold rush then. However, now six years in, seven years in or whatever the market is, um, I guess six years, but for us, four years of doing business, the market is significantly constrained for our kind of business because all the big companies have hired teams. They all have internal teams. Um, all the small companies want to do it for little to nothing because they have to make their app either free or a dollar. So they just don't have the budgets that they had to begin with. And then what ends up happening is we, end up being team augmentation, honestly, is what we've kind of turned into where we used to be 
you know, we'd say, here's the per project price. We do it in four or five months or whatever. We deliver the product. It's all us end to end. Now, you know, with teams like Google, with teams like American Express, we're team augmentation. There's three or four of us, depending on the project coming in and we're effectively working as a part of their team and, and we're helping them build a product. And that's because they have existing teams. The issue is there's an endless demand for building the apps in these organizations. So they're frequently just still don't have enough of a team. You know, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but like Google advertised for iOS developers on Daring Fireball the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Google. This is, you know, it's for yeah. all intents and purposes, the largest engineering company, one of the largest engineering companies for this type of work. And they still constantly need to hire iOS people. You so. know what this relates to exactly is I remember uh, architects have told me about this. It's, it's sort of a similar thing. It's like during the great times when everything, there's a, a, you know, a land rush to build, right? We're building taller buildings, whatever architecture firms will be. And sometimes they are hired as adjuncts in that way for existing companies, uh, depending on the size of the firm. They're building buildings, they're building houses, they're building whatever all this stuff's going on then when it gets lean or they do um what's it called client uh or it's um it's a specialized kind of work you're doing rebuilds Mm -hmm. inside of offices Mm -hmm. and it's much less interesting you're much more constrained it doesn't pay as well but you have to do it because it pays the bills but then you're hoping the cycle changes and then things go back like another thing shifts outside of your any control you have Right. You have no control. The guy who made Flappy Bird had no control that it would go viral and sort of destroy his life temporarily, even though he's making piles of money. Good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The the problem of abundance is something I talk a lot about on the podcast because there are huge problems that go along with success Mm -hmm. when success outstrips your ability to meet the level of quality and attention that you have. And I mean, that was Marco's, uh, the Instapaper story. One of the reasons he sold it is it wasn't that he was incapable of doing it. He did not want to hire staff mm-hmm. and he did, could not do what he felt was reasonable for his customers. So selling a very, very successful product, uh, was the only way to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we struggle with that a lot too, because I'm frequently asked by people like, why don't you hire up, you know, get 10 people working for you, 15 yeah. people working for you. Then you can question. do all these apps for these clients real quick. Cause you got 12 people and it's like, for me, four people, including myself is too much. I, it scares the hell out of me. I don't like being responsible for that many people's salaries and stuff. I, you know, it's, it's a lot of stress. It's, you know, talk to my wife about whether or not I should hire more people. It's, it takes a toll on you. I never wanted to run a large company. I wanted to run a, a small nimble company that could build really fun stuff and keep us making enough money that we were comfortable, but you know, not like get rich quick. I wanted to be in it for the long run and we're four and a half years in. And I, I still think four and a half years is a really long time to run an in, a business like this. Um, Right. Usually you scale up or down, you go indie and you kind of, sh- yeah. you, you, you get rid of the employees. Some people stay in contract or they've gone off and then there are other things through attrition and you're just your own person doing your own thing, one component, or you've got a hundred people because the bill right. is a scale. But it sounds like there's so much unpredictability in this, as you say, is like, you never know tomorrow Apple could. And I think we may be with the announcements about iOS more sanguine about what Apple's plans are for developers in the future than I think I have been in years, mm-hmm. but you never knew t- if tomorrow Apple wouldn't change, you know, rule 10.15.3. I run a book price comparison site called ISBN.new. That's this old programming experiment that continue like 15 years later, continues to run and has actually been a a great uh, side source of revenue for me. And uh, the thing about it that is challenging is one of the big 
sell-throughs is to Amazon, because mm-hmm. even if Amazon doesn't have the best price, people prefer to buy from them. They compare right. prices. Amazon has a worse price, and they still buy. So Amazon in 2000, I was getting an app developed, for instance, and you've probably heard stories like this. I was getting an app developed in 2008, and Amazon suddenly put out its mobile rules that said you cannot use our web services API to display information in a mobile app. And that was the end of that. And and that's true now, six years later, still true. And they've put even more restrictions in what that means as well, uh, even with websites that are displayed in a responsive format. Uh, so we are not masters of our own fate, as independent as we want to be when we're in this market. And I, I, I can understand why having four employees is terrifying at one level, because you have to keep that engine stoked, right? You're mm-hmm. put, putting coal, putting renewable, organic, uh, sustainably harvested coal into that <laughs> that fireplace. Sometimes I just throw rocks in there. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> I hope they burn. You know, you look at the payroll not every week, every two weeks, and you go, okay, this is this is an ongoing thing. We got it. You know, we have to do the work, and and it's hard. It's very stressful, and um, you know, I, for a long time, also we were we started losing business to really large companies where there are a bunch of of iOS companies that have you know 200 employees 100 employees and they do these apps for nbc and cbs interactive and all this crazy stuff and they do these huge apps and they do them real cheap and real fast and i kept thinking is this going to be a problem for us but then i started seeing the quality of those apps and they're all so low and i realized that there probably will still be a place in the market for a four-person team who can do a high quality app at you know a reasonable cost it's just hard it's it's stressful and it's difficult and um it's not always very rewarding because a lot of times because we're team we're augmenting teams we don't have as much creative control as we would like and and we we have to do things sometimes where we're like this is not in the best interest of this app but you know this is the client and this is what the client wants whereas when we look at an app like scratch or other apps that we've worked on for ourselves you know obviously we get to control every end of that and so it it is endlessly more more exciting to work on the the other thing i would point out and so i always thought you know, it's really hard to tell whether or not your pricing is competitive in a market because, you know, we're, I'm kind of in a vacuum with that. I, I charge what I feel like we are worth and what I feel like we can charge for the work we do. And sometimes, you know, you, you bid on a project and the client immediately goes, whoa, 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 who do you think you are? Um, and then sometimes you bid on a client on a project where you think maybe this is too much and they go, okay, sounds good. And so you're kind of always in a vacuum of like, this is all sort of whatever you think it's worth and what you can mutually agree it's worth. And that that's a very hard thing to do. Sales is a, an awful, awful process. Um, so they, I don't know if you're familiar at all with um, Soft Facade. No. Uh, they're a, a company, I think they were initially in Russia. Um, they're a, a terrific design company and they just rebranded as uh, SF, I, I want to say it's SFCD, but it's that French letter with the curl on the C where facade is, is pronounced from. So I don't know <laughs> I how, I think it's SFCD now. They just rebranded as SFCD. They they do terrific design work. I, I, I don't know about their development work because most of their the apps they've built, I haven't actually used, but design work, they're, they're very, very good. And they... I always figured that they were priced way higher than us or that they were priced way lower than us. It was very hard to tell how they were, you know, they just released a blog post. Um, It's sfcd.com slash blog slash cost. And it's called the cost of an app. And I read it the other day and I was just like cheering at my desk because I was like, okay, one, I'm not crazy. Two, these numbers are so close to our numbers that they make me feel like I've been doing the right thing for a long time. And these guys do excellent work and we price our work roughly the same. And so I just felt like to read that was 
was so nice to see that there's another company doing what we're doing. And the reason they wrote that post is for the same reason I've always wanted to write that post, which is that we get clients who just straight up don't understand that this is difficult work that costs money. And I'm looking at this post right now and it's making me extremely happy yeah. for a reason because this matches what I think it costs right. too. I've not, I've both, I've both priced out development. I, I do server side programming, but I never got into the whole world of C, Objective C, and the rest. And and I'm looking at Swift and so forth. But that's not that's not really my headspace. Mm-hmm. So I can do all this. I can do. P, I've got a built enormous amounts of PHP and Perl stuff now. Uh, but I'm looking at their prices. I'll, I'll link this in the show notes too, if people want to get a direct link. And um, it's exactly what this is. Actually, ridiculously close to what not just the numbers that I've gotten from people when I bid stuff out, but also what I thought. Like the magazine app, the original one Marco wrote, I've told people consistently, that app was probably two hundred to $300,000 worth of work if you hired a firm to do it. If, if you were lucky, let's say $300,000 at the outside, maybe, uh, maybe more even. And you'd also need a full-time person to be working with that outside development firm on it. So you'd need like $100,000 or more person on staff. Uh, or if you're a founder, you're taking... 30 hours, 20, 30 hours a week of your own time to do this as a founder, you know, if not paying yourself to work with the firm developing it. And people think, why does a magazine app cost $300,000? I'm like, all it's, it's because of this, uh, the experience you're trying to create. And it's not that programming is difficult per se, right? Like it's programming is an expression of controlling reality Mm -hmm. through process, but it's all of these things to make an app that people would actually want to use. Like you could write a crappy app really fast and people have, there are sites that actually highlight apps that have ridiculous buttons. Remember that one where uh, the guy with the crazy buttons for some time tracking app and he went berserk that people would critique his thing. Every button's there for a purpose. So you can make a terrible app. Someone can make a terrible app very cheaply to make an app people actually want to use costs money and this is the these numbers are using are ridiculously close to what i've been hearing and seeing myself yeah i mean not only the numbers too but if you actually read through it they kind of they kind of go through what we always go through in the sales process with clients Mm -hmm. who are uninitiated which is clients love to say things like it's a simple app or there's not much to it or we're going to have an mvp or you know the ux will be really straightforward and it's like None of those things, first of all, they're all BS because everybody thinks their idea is simple and easy and none of them ever are. And that's not a fault. That's just reality of life. That's reality. You know? Yeah, I agree. Um, but the idea that uh, the word simple is terrible. People write about this all the time. Or the word just is really terrible. It's, oh, just do this. Or, oh, it'll just do that. You know. Um, so they kind of go through like the whole thing and they break it out into discrete lists of, you know, if you say you want to do a notes app, that also includes 5,000 things you didn't think of that you are just saying, oh, that's just part of it. Um, but you right. know, when you put it all together, you get to a hundred days of work and a hundred days of work is a lot of money. Um, yeah, I mean, and you could, you could say there's a flip side of that too. This is where the power comes in is that Marco Arment and other, and I keep citing him because he's well known in the field and he's a friend and so forth. But there's, uh, the fact that you as an individual, this is like the JK Rowling thing, right? She sat down in a cafe and wrote a bunch of books that I think in longhand, like her first book, right? Mm-hmm. And she's worth billions of dollars. This is the same thing. There's a manifestation of that for programmers is you can look at this and say it would take 100 days to build a social notes app is their estimate. And maybe, let's say, $150,000 in that range, mm-hmm. plus or minus, right? But one person or two people working together, like the Game 3s, I interviewed the, one of the folks behind the Game 3s, you can do that work for yourself in your own time, whether you're eating ramen or you have a full-time job that pays the bills or whatever you're doing, 
you can do that and you can conserve all that cost to yourself, but you don't know the outcome, but you can still, you can do $150,000 worth of work yourself in essentially six months or three months if you're nuts <laughs> and if you work night and day and you could produce something amazing as an individual or a very small team, but it, you can't build a business reliably on the back of it. Right. And the other problem, and I think Marco's faced this, and I know we've faced it, which is you do all that work, you spend all that time on it. You put it in market, and now Marco, you know, time and time again has has come up in a great position with the apps that he sells, um, but in a more realistic environment where you don't have that level of success with every app that you release, or at least initially, you do all that work and you release it, and it just doesn't generate income. Right, ninety nine point nine percent of yeah. apps are like that, right? That yeah, and so yeah. you know, Scratch has been on the market for two years. It hasn't generated much income at all. It definitely hasn't come anywhere near paying for itself, even close. I mean, it's probably at a quarter of what it actually technically cost us to build it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they become passion projects, which is great. But that's because we make ninety nine percent of our money from client work. If we didn't have client work, Scratch would not be a project we would continue to work on. It does not make money, you know, like. There, there are a few companies on earth, honestly, that are doing that successfully. And I think that when Jared wrote that piece, he got a lot of responses saying, yeah, I, I've, I made no money last year and now I made no money last year. And then he got a few where people said, this is nonsense. Of course you can make money. Look at me. I have 33 apps in this store. Each right. one makes a little bit of money. And right. when they all come together, I, but then you start looking at the apps they've made and you start going, okay, so you got 30 apps in the store. All of them are kind of mediocre is this something that you want to, is that what you want to do? <laughs> and personally, for me, it's not. That's and so mean 30, and totally true though. I mean, yes. it's, 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 it's a hard thing to say because I, I can appreciate that someone can build 30 apps and, and make money and survive that way. It's just not built into how yeah. we want to make apps. We want to make apps where they're highly thoughtful and highly, um, uh, just regarded like I, the, when we build an app, I mean, we spend so much time thinking about, is this even worth building? We have not built more apps than we have built by a factor of a million. It, we, we constantly come up with ideas where we're like, we can't make that as good as we want it to be. It's not worth spending our time on, you know, maybe somebody else will figure it out. And the number of times that we've had, uh, we've seen apps come to market that got $20 million of VC to build these apps. And we're like, Oh, remember when we had that idea? Yeah. Still doesn't look like it's going to be good. You know, like sometimes they're just not worth doing and it's hard to find. That's why I'm glad we're not totally an independent developer because I think it forces you to make decisions sometimes that are not the decisions you'd make otherwise. I think that is a great, that's a great mission statement. Uh, Christian made statement too. Well, Garrett, wow. So people can find you online. Where's the best place? They can find you at Garrett Murray on Twitter. Yes. I'm Garrett Murray pretty much on every, on every service at this point. Two R's, two T's, which has been a lifetime struggle for me. Uh, (laughs) Let me tell you. How many Garrett, how many? Yes. Well, thank you for walking us through the vagaries of this. I think it's a really interesting feel. I I hope nobody listening gets discouraged. I think this is all about realism, about whether, you you know, if you're, if you're writing software, thinking about getting into it, uh, you know, or you're in the middle of something and you're thinking, God, is it just me? I think hearing you say all this is so wonderful to me as a uh, owner of an app, not an app developer, but someone who owns one and now is sort of, you know, working with a platform. I still, you know, sort of own the app. It's released under my company and anybody planning to do it. It's it's not that this is all undoable or everything will be a failure in the future. I think you've defined this space about what and where we can find success now and how reliable, reliable it is. But we'll see what happens. Things may change and for the better. 
Yeah, I think that, right, it does, it can sound negative, but I honestly do think we're right at the beginning of this. I think that the iPhone, the iPad, whatever the wearable thing is going to be, whatever comes next, we're just starting. I mean, my son is two years old. I can't fathom what it's going to be like for him when he's, when he's my age. I don't know what computing looks like at that time. And <laughs> the idea that, I, that we're giving up now because this is hard, no, definitely not. And I, I don't want to give that impression. I think that there is there is absolutely a bright future for this. It's just we may have to... It may be a lot more work than we expected a few years ago to make it plausible to make money off of it. But I think it's doable. It's just going to be a lot of work. Well, I'm willing to do the hard work, and you clearly are, too. So we'll, we'll get there. We'll all get there. We'll all find it out. Maybe Apple will have her back now. It sounds like they have more interest in it. Yeah, definitely. Garrett, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, T-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.